0: I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of because America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. It's a crisis that strikes uh, uh, we are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we say and hear these things, the millions
1: of Americans cry out in anguish, did we come all this way
0: for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even
1: fun. We are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. Three, two, one. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem.
0: Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and I'm coming to you, as always, from the White Tiger Studio. Not a lot has changed in my life, as is true for quite a lot of people. I'm now on day 55 of self-quarantine, and in those 55 days I've done many things, but the day-to-day world hasn't changed a whole lot for me. Every day does seem to be different from the day before, so there's a lot of diversity, but there's this kind of homogenous feeling to the overall experience, because I don't really know when this phase in our collective lives is going to be over, that uncertainty about the you know, what people are calling return to normal, and that's a phrase that's starting to sound like it doesn't have any meaning in the short term and possibly in the medium term, and what will a return to normal look like in the long term and what will the long term term be? How long until we get to that long term? All of these questions are really kind of unanswerable, and the uncertainty is something that I'm particularly happy to sit with, but it has created this sort of unbounded sense of time. So I can can't really except for the increasing count up on the chalkboard in my dining room which now tells me i'm on day 55 i can't really tell where in chronological time i am i'm just kind of floating in this place where there are no boundaries so that's where i am in my mental state i hope that everybody listening is in a good place even though i'm sure there are challenges you're facing there are hard emotions there could be practical challenges involved in your life. You could be an essential worker who's out there doing one of the many things that are important to the rest of us who are quarantined for the most part, locked down, sheltering in place, whatever your life happens to be like. I hope that there is at least some opportunity to spend time swimming around in this bizarre boundaryless time and this kind of homogenous, uncertain what's the short term, what's the medium term, what's the long term going to look like and that this is proving beneficial to you and isn't driving you completely crazy. I'm not really sure that there's much more to say about the situation. There's of course a ton to say, and there's all kinds of things happening in the world, and there's all kinds of people saying all kinds of things. But I have my outlet here, and I'm in your ears right now. This is my podcast, and I'm going to just move right into it, rather than continue spinning out and floundering around in this homogenous, boundaryless time. The guest on this week's episode is Allison McCaffrey, and Allison is a very interesting person. She is, unlike anyone else I've interviewed so far, she is a civic engagement activist. So she's not particularly involved in pushing for a specific cause. She's not an advocate in that sense, but she is an advocate in the broader sense. She works in the political world because she's involved in education and trying to get people to increase their awareness and their activity, but she doesn't fit any of the neat boxes that other people have fit into that have been on the show. She's not a strategist or a campaign manager or a pollster or an elected official. She is, however, an author and a founder of a nonprofit Her book, Politics of the Possible, is about her grandmother, Mary Ellen McCaffrey, who was a pioneering female legislator in Washington State in the 1960s at a time when virtually no women were in elected office in the United States. Allison herself never really knew much about what her grandmother did until her grandmother asked her to write a book about her life in politics, and Allison essentially learned everything that she knows now about politics and civic engagement from the beginning of that project forward. Allison later founded and serves as the executive director of a nonprofit organization, Politics of the Possible in Action, named after the book and inspired by the lessons that her grandmother taught, many of which didn't make it into the book because there were just too many things to fit. I think that I'm probably giving away more of the interview than I normally do, but I wanted to set the stage for the fact that Allison is a person living in the world of politics but doing so in a way that isn't really familiar to me as a person who studies politics and I was particularly fascinated to get to hear her perspective and how she sees things in order to get that perspective and to see how she sees things I think it's just time to get into the interview I'm on the phone today with Allison McCaffrey thanks for joining me on the show today Allison Thanks for having me So I've been referring to you in my mind as an arts activist would you say that that's an accurate label and if it is could you just elaborate a little bit on what that means to you
1: I am activist that's using art, performance art, and um, written stories to develop civic education and community engagement. How
0: did you get into this?
1: Believe it or not, my grandmother, she uh, asked me to write a book about 15 years ago. And of course, when your grandmother asks you to do something, you say yes. And then you say, well, what's it about? <laughs> my grandmother is Mary Ellen McCaffrey. Little did I know that she was a legislator in the state of Washington, so when she asked me to help write a book about her time in the Washington State Legislature, I jumped in and learned a ton. You know, it was amazing. I have two degrees from top universities, and I knew nothing about civics, so when she asked me to help, I was essentially the legs of the operation. She was 85 at the time and learned a ton about the 1960s in Washington State, state government time she was um, when she was working on redistricting. And so I learned a ton about redistricting and the lawmaking process and all sorts of things. And that's what got me into kind of civic action work.
0: She was a Washington State legislator in the 60s. And how long was she in the legislature?
1: She was reelected for four terms, so from 62 to 70. And she went off to be the head of the Department of Revenue and Chief of Staff to Senator Slade Gorton in D.C., and then she went on to retire to Kitsap, Peninsula, Washington, and did all sorts of local stuff as well.
0: I imagine that she was one of the few women in the Washington State Legislature at the time. Did you come across, as you were doing research or talking to her for the book, any of her stories or feelings about what it was like to be a woman in politics at a time when it was extremely male-dominated?
1: So she was one of seven at the time. The six others had stories of often taking their husbands' seats or um, different ways in which they'd come about being in the legislature and it's interesting because mary Ellen was a greatest generation woman so she was before kind of the uh, the feminist wave and all of that and she was so focused on getting the job done and she realized guys she was working with were products of their times and they'd be like nice go-go boots mary Ellen," and she'd be like yeah okay well now what about that legislation we were talking about and she just Completely focused on getting the job done, doing what needed to be done at the time, and not letting her being a woman be any factor in letting her succeed.
0: And did she find that she was able to essentially set aside the gender gap and act in that way and get things done?
1: Absolutely. She was a master at the relationship building. Which made her a really good lawmaker in the end. And she, I really credit her and and her generation for proving that women could be as good as lawmakers as anyone. And she was able to persevere and set aside when someone was going on anything, someone was going down the wrong path. And she knew she wanted to understand their point of view more or just try to negotiate how are we going to put all of these things together to get this law written. And she just persevere, and it was a, it's amazing to listen to all of her stories about, you know, sitting with the CEO of Boeing and negotiating tax rates, you know, <laughs> increasing taxes on Boeing kind of thing. she'd just hear how she had this amazing ability to make the person in front of her feel like they were the most important person in the room, and she could use all those relationships she built to the advantage of the people of Washington State.
0: She sounds like she was a natural politician. As you were sitting with her and working on this book and doing research, were you yourself compelled to get drawn into the world of politics, or did that particular personality trait not skip a generation and land in you?
1: Well, what she gave me the bug about was not politics in the way that we normally think of it. Because so she was this woman who was mom of five, you know, PTA mom, the schools in Seattle were completely underfunded at the time. So she was jumping in trying to figure out how could they fund the schools and realized they couldn't fund the schools until they fixed redistricting in the state. And she got connected up with through a friend to the League of Women Voters and realized, wow, these these ladies, you know, aren't ladies who lunch. (laughs) They're ladies who really study what's going on and figure out what needs to be done. So she became one of the state's best experts in redistricting so that both parties asked her to run for the open seat in her district. When you think of politicians, you kind of think of the, you know, the partisan divide and whatnot. She was such a bipartisan, just notoriously so, that both sides liked her and how she was able to negotiate, particularly the redistricting bill, but negotiate the laws that she did.
0: Well, that is the kind of elected official that many people today wish we had more of.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you asked me whether I got the bug. So I got the bug for the bipartisan nature, the civic engagement nature. A book called Politics of the Possible uh, is called that for a reason, right? She always was finding out what is the best for the most number of people And she realized that when she interviewed all of us grandchildren, how much we were just checked out from the governmental process. And me too. Again, I was a graduate of major universities, didn't know anything about civics, didn't know the difference between Congress and our state legislature.
0: And you didn't grow up in a political family? My
1: dad was on the school board while I was growing up, but honestly, I didn't know anything about grandma's political career. We weren't partisan in any nature. It was about education and doing the right thing and and all of that. So, yeah, didn't grow up in what you'd consider a traditional political household.
0: And you guys didn't discuss politics around the dinner table?
1: No, not at all. We'd be more likely to to discuss some academic nature. Um, My dad was flying to South America when I was young. He worked in executive at an oil company. So really that passion for good government in my grandparents' book that they wrote their memoirs, they called it one of their golden bread. While their kids understood it, none of them really got the passion. And so I am really honored to kind of be picking up that golden thread of honoring our democracy and good government that runs through my family.
0: So, what do you now do as a person who's been energized about civic engagement?
1: Well, so I started a nonprofit organization called Politics of the Possible in Action in honor of my grandmother's philosophies about enhancing civic education and really igniting that spirit of um, community and citizen engagement. And we wanted it to be not just another activist organization, but really try to figure out where, where was the key pressure point. And I had worked with nonprofits for the 10 years previously and just realized how much nonprofits never had time to actually tell stories were always looking for, you know, they're so busy doing the job, it was hard to, like, find the stories that were talking about their job. So having the book was really an inspiration for, hey, let's spark civic engagement by telling stories of people who were civically engaged. But that's what Mary Ellen always wanted to do. She wanted her story to inspire others, not to preach, you should do this or you should do that, but to really inspire. So we started with her story because obviously we have the book. I partnered with the Legal Women Voters and started telling her story as a way to say, look how much you can get involved. You don't need to be some extraordinary flag-waving leader. You just you need to have commitment and passion and learn as you go and you too can make a difference.
0: You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support, We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions, you can do what you think and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. What are some of the challenges that you face as a storytelling civic engagement activist?
1: So fundraising, always people talk about it, but it's related to the marketing side of things. In a world that has so much coming at everybody all at once, and if you live and work in the nonprofit world, you just know how much more people are trying to do on so much less. So I think the biggest challenge is figuring out how to break through all of that messaging, all of the the noise, if you will, to catch someone's attention think it's a really interesting problem to try to figure out, and because it's my grandmother, and people just light up when I when I tell them about the book, and then I go, "Oh, by the way, it's my grandmother," and they immediately get a smile, and you know, it changes their perspective. And I say, "Oh, and she was a mom of five, and she did this and that." not doesn't that sound exactly like? who you are and what you do and and they start to get interested i like finding that connection to folks and really figuring out that challenge of how do you break through all the messages that everybody hears all the time
0: right and that's a challenge i've heard from a lot of my guests public officials people working behind the scenes How do you get your message out through the giant noise of, one, national politics, and two, all of the stuff that's going on in social media that is so fueled by anger and outrage and also just entertainment? It sounds like word of mouth and personal connection is a big tool for you. What are other ways that you are trying to cut through the noise and get your message out there?
1: Well, so our biggest project in this last couple of years has been turning the first four chapters of the book into a one-woman show a play, because uh, we knew not everybody's going to read a book. I was sitting down with coffee with the then president of the League of Women Voters, and I was asking her this question of like, what's going to catch people's attention that we can use this story in a way, in a different kind of way, and we're brainstorming about all of these kind of, <laughs> like maybe making curriculum or something like that. And then just out of the blue, she says, well, we could do a play. And, she, and her eyes got really big, and she said, Oh, my sister is a one-woman show actress. Uh, Jane Sellers has been acting in one-woman shows for the last 35, 40 years. Um, done amazing work with Bella Van Amherst, with Emily Dickinson. She now does First Lady Lou. She took up our challenge of playing my grandmother in a two-hour, two-act play. And really dramatizing the redistricting battle that happened uh, between 1916 and 1965, and when Mary Ellen was at the heart of the first time Washington was ever redistricted.
0: Well, that sounds like a very innovative approach to bringing politics to people and for cutting through the cacophony of messages out there. How would you say it's been going? What's your evaluation of your of this particular effort?
1: people who see it, I love it. They are entertained and educated all at the same time. They walk away knowing so much more about the legislative process and about redistricting than they ever thought they would want to know. And they laugh and they cry. And so it's been amazing. Uh, Those that have come and seen it, we've put on three productions so far. We've been stymied first by a snowstorm in Olympia and now by the coronavirus, could <laughs> not be able to put on the shows that we would have liked. So we're going to turn our effort to creating a video play and having our actress, Jane, act out the full play and video record it so that we can have a digital version of it and leave that not only in the full length of the play, but also to break out little snippets and use them as educational modules. We have some work that I've been doing with the civics teachers here in Washington, Mercer Island High, uh, in particular, where I go into the classroom and teach about redistricting and teach about the legislative process. And so I'm hoping to use these scenes from the play with some wraparound materials to really enhance those classroom modules.
0: Well, that's great. You know, you, like many people, are struggling with the challenges of getting your message out in a field where person-to-person contact is very important. All of politics is essentially person-to-person contact, or much of it is, especially at the local and state level. When you can't have person-to-person contact, you have to find innovative ways to continue getting your message out there. And it sounds like you're not only rising to that challenge, but you're seeing it as an opportunity to do even more to create these educational modules out of pits to the place. So that's really impressive.
1: It's been fun. The relationships I have built all around the state and all around the country, I'm connected to redistricting advocates in all 50 states through my work with the Legal Women Voters. And having built those relationships, now when we have to work virtually, those are really coming in handy. I got a note today, hey, will you do a you do a Zoom meeting for my Legal Women Voters unit in Pullman on Monday? You know, we'd love to talk to you for an hour about civics and redistricting. And of course, because I've met her before, it was easy to say yes and easy to get the technology to work for you. But I think it's the result of years of creating those relationships and knowing people all around the state and the country.
0: I do want to turn here towards the end of the interview towards the question that I ask every guest on the show. And that is, what is something that used to outrage you that no longer does, and why the change?
1: The one I wanted to talk about for this question was about how people say making laws is like making sausage. Something you know has to happen, and it tastes good in the end, but you don't want to see it made. I used to think like that, and it used to just make me so mad that laws were made that way or something. And now I'm the exact opposite. I don't want anybody to use that term because I think how laws are made can be a beautiful thing. And if we keep repeating that uh, narrative that it's like making sausage, then we're doing ourselves a disservice, right? As long as we think it's an ugly thing, then the right people won't go into being lawmakers and being elected officials. We won't get the transparency and the back and forth, the negotiating, the compromising that we know is what makes good laws. So even this last session, I was trying to pass a law revising some of the processes for Washington State's redistricting and commission and had a great opportunity to work with a number of people. It was just fascinating to see how many people it does take to try and get a law written. And this was a fairly simple law, but everybody from the legislator who sponsors it, to the staff members that are writing it, to the staff members that are making sure we've thought of all the different kinds of implications of the law, to just all of the activists from every corner that might be interested in the law and why it's going to be good for our society. So I'm actually just seeing the beauty in what humans can accomplish when something is complex and takes compromise instead of seeing it as something that's ugly and should be hidden in a corner.
0: My question for you is, if you didn't really grow up in a political family, yet you were left with the impression at some point in your life that the legislative process was like a sausage factory, what do you think gave you that impression in the first place?
1: I think we have a lot of media narratives that are the government is something to be feared and hidden away, something done to people, when the exact opposite is true from our founding fathers, that the government is of the people, right? It's meant to be about all of us. I start some of my talks with the idea and the concept of we the people. The only way that that concept comes to full fruition is if all of us participate in the governmental process and in whatever way, right? Not everybody's going to be an elected official but everything can interact. It's census time. That's a way that everybody, no matter how young or old or citizen or non-citizen, voter or non-voter, everybody gets to participate in this process to govern ourselves. I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. and It's going to take all of us to counter those Media messages that gave me that impression when I was a teenager and a young adult.
0: I agree with you that the dominant messages that we get are that politics is ugly. It's about power. It's not a pleasant thing. Regular people ought to keep a distance from it. And it sounds like, as an activist who wants to promote civic engagement, you're really—that's a message that you have to push back against pretty hard, isn't it?
1: Yep. And it starts at the local level. It starts at people realizing that they can make a difference in their neighborhoods. They can get a stop sign at a stoplight you know, on their street when it needs, and they can work with their local folks. And if we have great local folks, that means, you know, they usually graduate to be great state folks. Focusing on the local, focusing, you know, go to those meetings. I think it's the same hundred people at the county council meetings. You know, they're either on the board or they're testifying in front of the boards of our county council, you know, out of a our county is 800,000 people. Get involved in big and small ways so that it's not something to be feared. It's something to be understood.
0: Well, you know, I usually try to wrap up these interviews by asking my guests for some advice or for some perspective, but you've just done that. I've heard that from a lot of people who work in different corners of politics. Get involved, do so at the local level, break into the few thousand people who are getting involved, and you can have a real impact. It's nice to hear that coming from people who have a variety of perspectives on the political life.
1: And it's not just politics. It's about your community. Because if you're involved, this is because from my nonprofit bench, right? If I'm involved with feeding the hungry, and that's what I'm passionate about, you'll run into the lawmaking that is around your passion. And don't be afraid to do that advocacy just because it has to do with the law. You're passionate about homelessness. You're passionate about something that's engaging with our government and the policies around our communities as well.
0: Well, I think that's a great way to end this interview. I really want to thank you for speaking with me today. And this has been, for me, enlightening. I haven't spoken to somebody who's involved in uh, a sort of arts-oriented civic engagement nonprofit organization. And I've learned an awful lot. And I think my listeners have learned an awful lot as well.
1: In fact, this has been fun to talk through. I hope people check out politicsofthepossible.com and see about the book and the play. That'd be Great to have some more Oregonians and people from all across the nation check
0: us out. Absolutely. I'm going to put all of these links in the show notes and encourage everybody to go check out all the things that you're doing. Thanks for speaking to me today.
1: Thanks,
0: Zach. That's the episode for this week. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I very much enjoyed talking to Allison on the phone. I enjoyed listening to it again as I was putting together this episode And there is yet another take on get involved, get involved locally, and you can have an impact. Certainly something that a lot of my guests have said is there are opportunities for people to get involved in ways that don't mean running for higher office and don't mean getting involved in the most high profile kinds of ways. You don't have to start a nonprofit organization, you don't have to become a staffer for a member of Congress, you don't have to become a campaign manager or run for elective office to have an impact on our political system. And in fact, I've heard from so many different people that those might not even be the best way to have a direct impact. I won't say more on that avenue, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions. You're an intelligent audience that can figure things out for yourself, you do not need in any way to be told by me what it is that you should take out of these interviews. Speaking of opportunities to get involved, next week's guest, Sonia Montalbano, is a person who is running for her first political office. She's running for a judgeship position, which is an unusual type of elected office, and you'll hear about that in the interview next week. There are certain kinds of legal restrictions on the way people running for judge positions can go about running their campaigns, and it's an interesting difference between other elected offices. We're gonna get a chance to listen to Sonia's perspective not only about running for judge, but what it is that she thinks that she wants to do. She's been involved in politics for a very long time, but this is the first time that she's running for office. So that, I hope, will be an interesting uh, interview. I think it's interesting. I, of course, think that all of the guests that I have on are pretty fascinating people, and I've learned a ton in what has now been 27 episodes of this podcast. Okay, well, I think that it's time for me to exit gracefully, and as always, I leave with some music This time, I have a little bit of a different type of music to leave on. I've been somewhat more isolated than normal, not just because I am largely quarantined to the house, but I have not been communicating with people at the level that I used to. And it's been kind of nice, but also what it means is that I haven't been doing the kind of outreach for music that I normally do. I find myself this week without a song to end the podcast with. I went digging through the audio archives on my computer and I found an old recording that I made of a street musician and I thought well what better way to go out on this particular episode about an arts activist or what I've called an arts activist than to play a street musician making sounds for people just out there in the world. Here it is and as always thank you for listening.